Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Kendall. I would almost certainly be blind and brain damaged. Well, I like to think he was only half right. <laughs> I can plainly see. <laughs> that and more. But before that, if I sound a little strange, it's because I'm in a hotel room. We just did Risk in San Francisco. It was an amazing show. But I'm still here in my hotel room. And listen, I do want to tell you before we start the show that we are so excited that we finally have a way that you, the Risk fans, can easily help us keep the show going. It's brilliant. It's a simple way of showing your support. And it's through our page on Patreon. It's at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. Patreon.com slash risk. The way it works is you can choose to give $1 a month or $3 or 5 or 10 or even up to $100 a month. And depending on how much you give, you get access to all kinds of prizes and, and bonus content from us here at the show. We've been working our asses off since 2009, creating this show on a shoestring budget with three full-time employees and now more than 20 part-time folks pitching in. And it takes a lot to produce over 50 live shows a year, put out one episode a week, work with hundreds of storytellers on the shaping of their stories, do workshops and social media and more. Making Risk saved my life. And almost every day, a fan writes in to say, it's meant just as much to them. I was just in Austin, and a woman came up to me, gave me a huge hug, and said that the podcast saved her marriage. If you love Risk, you know how very unique and very important it is. With fan funding, we'll be able to produce more content, pay our staff what they deserve, and keep ourselves from burning out. The prizes are awesome. Our all-star episodes, access to videos and pics and other posts that I'll be creating just for patrons and also other people on the team will too. Our video courses, uh, getting thanked by name on the show, chances to meet us over Skype, uh, personalized versions of stamps.com songs, and so much more. I'm just about to upload my first patrons-only video, and I think this is just going to be a super fun way for fans to be more plugged in to the Risk community. So, it would absolutely mean the world to us if you became a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk, and I hope to see you there soon. Now, here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share 
I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Odyssey behind me now. We're calling today's episode Southern Folk. These are three stories during our recent Texas shows. They're actually from people who were born and raised in totally various parts of the South. And you can hear it in their wonderful accents and their wonderful ways of phrasing things. I'm just a great lover of different, unique styles of talking. And you'll hear three wonderful examples on today's show. Well, I'll tell you, it's so inspiring and exciting. It just fills me with hope to see all the protesting at the airports this weekend and all the donations to the ACLU. If you haven't donated to the ACLU, I urge you to consider it. As you know, I like to let people know about things they can actually be doing to help one another these days. And one I just read about in Vogue is called Daily Action. You text the word daily to the number 228466, then you enter your zip code and you'll receive one text message every workday about an issue that you can take a little action on and how to do that. So for more information about that, go to dailyaction.org. But now let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Dave Kendall. He told an absolutely beautiful story with us in Austin. But before that, something from the wonderful Donna Edwards, who did the show for the second time in Houston. Here's Donna now with a story we call Private Parts. just want y'all guys to know that it's very scary standing here. But anyway, my story is about the day I found out my penis wasn't going to grow in. (laughs) Up until about the age of 13, I lived with my father who loved to drink, my two brothers, and my very Southern Baptist grandmother, who was a workaholic and wasn't at home a lot. I think it was just to get away from us. That's just my opinion. But anyway, that left us a lot of time with my father who drank, who taught us how to camp, hunt, fish, hunt women, anything my father did, we were right there with him. So that kind of made me a a little bit of a tomboy. Well, on Sundays, my grandmother was off and would go to church morning and night because she did not want us to become a heathen like my father. So around the age of seven, my pastor started talking about homosexuals. Man, God did not like these people. They were abomination, they were sexually immoral, they were deviant, whatever that shit was. I was seven. But all I knew is God did not like these people. So one day, I got up enough nerve to go in and ask my father what a homosexual is, because I did not want to ask my grandmother. She was mean as hell. So I walked into my father and I said, hey, dad. What's a homosexual? He turned around, looked at me, and he goes, where did you learn that word? I said, well, at church, the pastor's preaching about them, and he really don't like them people, and I just want to know what they are. 
He goes, well, uh, it's when a same-sex person likes the same-sex person, not the opposite-sex person. I looked at my father and went, what? He's like, okay, it's when a boy wants a boyfriend and not a girlfriend. I went, oh, does that include girls? He went, well, yeah. <laughs> They're a homosexual if they want a girlfriend. And I was like, oh. Well, I ran outside and went to where my brothers were playing, and I said, hey, Dad told me what a homosexual is. And they're like, what? I said, it's when a boy wants a boy, not a girlfriend. And my older brother went, hey, I'm not going to hell. I like girls. <laughs> and my little brother went, woohoo, me too. And I went, yeah, okay. Well, I went in the woods behind the house, and I was like, oh, shit. My penis hasn't grown in. Now, the reason I say this is because my father told me I was a late bloomer and it would grow in. <laughs> I was still waiting on that shit. So I was like, okay, okay, God, okay. I'm still a girl. I'm not really sure about this homosexual thing, but please, please do not make me something that you're going to send to hell because I really want to be with you. So just hurry up and let this penis grow in thing. So we're gonna fast forward to 11. It's a typical day in school. I'm in gym class and I love gym class, especially this week because we were learning gymnastics. I got to run and flip. I got to roll. I got to jump over this thing they call the horse. And we got to walk on this balancing beam. Well, it was my day to get on this balancing beam. So I'm like, okay, now I'm the class clown. I get up there and I'm balancing on one leg. I jump to the other and I'm just cutting up. Well, all of a sudden I come down on this balancing beam, full force to the coochie. <laughs> now, my eyes water, I see stars. I am feeling nauseous and I fall off this thing. Well, my little classmates run over there. You okay, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And I look down, I'm like, no, 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 blood. And then I thought, oh, this may hurt my penis from growing in. <laughs> I hope this doesn't mean it's going to grow in crooked. <laughs> so about that time, the coach runs over and I'm like, oh, shit, you're bleeding. Go to the nurse. So I go to the nurse and I'm explaining to the nurse and I was being an idiot. And, you know, she goes, let me get your dad on the phone. And I'm like, okay. It wasn't too much longer, my dad showed up. Now my dad's a big man. He feels this door, he's 6'3", 300 pounds, just all man. And I feel relieved because my father is here. I run up to him, I was like, Dad, I was being goofy, I fell. Look, I'm ruining my pants. We really need to get me to the emergency room. My father looks down at me and goes, and kind of turns and walks off. And I'm like, where's, where's, where's that? So I'm running behind him just like chatting you know, telling him what happened and what I was doing and how I was acting crazy. And we get in the truck and I look at my father, I'm like, are you listening to me? And I'm like, okay, 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 dad, but I'm bleeding. I've messed up these pants. Grandma are gonna be really mad because we're gonna have to buy me new pants. But anyway, we need to get to the emergency room because, you know, all the blood, I might need stitches and this might keep my penis from growing in. Well, my father kind of, I think I heard him chuckle. But then he looked at me with this just fear and he went, hmm. And he's, he's 
just started driving, and so I'm still chatting, you know, because I'm nervous because I think I'm going to bleed to death before we get to this hospital. So I see the hospital. I'm like, okay, Dad, slow down. Here comes the hospital. Hey, 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 hey. You passed the hospital. What is wrong with you? I am your favorite kid, right? You've always told me I'm your favorite kid, and you're going to let me bleed to death? He's just grunting. Keeps driving. Well, he pulls over at a convenience store. Now, I know what my dad's turning into this convenience store for because he cannot handle pressure or anything. He's going to get a beer. And I'm like, okay, give the man a beer. It'll be all right. You can't bleed to death in a couple of minutes, right? (laughs) So he's pulling out of the convenience store. I'm like, okay, Dad, here's your chance. Turn back. We got to turn back, Dad. We got to turn. Where are you going? Where are you going? Didn't you hear me? Can't you see me? I am going to bleed to death. And he's steadily just grunting and driving. And I'm like, okay, maybe he's lost his mind. His favorite child is bleeding to death. So he, yeah, yeah, he's, he's lost his mind. And I'm looking at him and I say, okay, dad, you've lost your mind, but seriously, seriously, turn around. This, this could be harm, harming some stuff, really harming stuff. Well, he pulls up in the driveway and I said, okay, dad, this isn't funny. You really, really need to take me to the emergency room. Well, he gets out and shuts the door. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I follow him in. He's popping open a beer and I'm like, yeah, let's drink, dad. Look, there's blood everywhere. I'm dying. I'm not feeling too good right now. And all of a sudden he takes this box out of this bag and slings it at me. And I'm looking at this box and I'm dyslexic. I can't make out too many words, but I can make out pads. I'm like, what is this? Mm. a big band-aid go in the bathroom and put it on and your grandmother will explain all this when she gets home I'm like a band-aid ain't gonna fix this but okay I'll go put it on so I get in the bathroom I take this band-aid out it's this long oval thing and it's got these flaps coming off the end well there's no sticky what kind of band-aid doesn't have sticky A Band-Aid, you tape it to an area and it protects the wounded area. This doesn't have it. So I'm standing there, I'm 11 going, well, how the hell? So I tie this sucker to my leg. (laughs) I go out there and I'm like, okay, dad, put it on. Wanna take me to the hospital now? Because this ain't gonna hold too long. (laughs) He's sitting there on his second beer and he went, points to the TV. Now, my dad loved TV. The only thing he didn't love as much as TV was alcohol and women. I'm like, okay. So I think Sanford or Son or something was on, and I started watching it, and I started thinking, what if this man doesn't take me to the emergency room, and this really affects my penis growing in? I'm never going to be able to pee in the woods. never going to be able to write my name in the snow. And boys really love their penis because they're always moving it and checking it and protecting it. And I really wanted one. Because if I didn't get one, that meant I was a homosexual and I was going to hell. But I was like, no, 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 no. Don't think about that. So time passed and it's getting late. And I looked at my father and I said, okay, dad, it's late. I'm feeling woozy, feeling weak. I've went through three of those (laughs) band-aids. We've been hunting together, Dad. 
I've seen things die by losing less blood than I've lost. I'm gonna die. And you're gonna let your favorite child die. Well, by this time, my father's drunk, okay? And he's like, mm, go to bed. I'm like, shit. I was like, okay, I'll go to bed. But my death is on you, old man. Your favorite child is gonna die in there and it's on you. I go into my bedroom and frankly I'm scared to death because I'm scared of dying because at church they showed us this little film called Burning Hell and it showed what happens when you die and go to hell and I did not want to go to hell and I'm like okay God um, you know I'm scared of going to hell and uh, please 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 don't let me die and go to hell but on a lighter note could you come ahead and let that penis grow in and please don't let it grow in crooked because of that stupid shit I did today please I don't know what I'd do with a crooked penis I just I've actually never seen one but I, I know that I wouldn't want it to be crooked so about that time my grandmother comes into my room I'm like thank God so she walks in and she goes so heard something happened at school today. I'm like, yeah, I was being goofy. I was on a bounce of being fell. Anyway, anyway, I need to go to the emergency room. I think I need some stitches because I went through three of those band-aids that dad gave me and they were just not working at all. So I, I feel like weak and everything. And my grandmother's like, shh, 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 you don't need to go to the emergency room. Should have told you this a couple of years ago, but you're gonna get this every month for five to seven days until you're about my age. I start doing the math in my head, and I'm like, damn, I've already lost a lot of blood right now. I'll be dead before I'm your age, old woman. So then I'm like, no, uh -uh, no, that's not going to happen, Grandma. I says, see, because my dad told me I was a late bloomer, and I've been praying to God to hurry up and make my penis grow in, so I think I'm good in that department. She starts laughing hysterically. I've never seen my grandmother laugh like this. She laughs so hard I thought she was going to fall off my bed. Kind of hurt my feelings. So I look down and say, Grandma, you're hurting my feelings. And she goes, Child, you are truly special. She says, But God is not going to answer that prayer. He made you a girl, and you are going to stay a girl. So I got a little nervous right then, and I'm like, hmm. And she goes, but I can see you've had a hard day. You go and get ready for bed, and I'm going to go out here and talk to your father. And I'll see you in the morning. So I stood there for a couple of minutes, and I'm like, wow, wow, what if she's true? She's telling the truth then. I'm a homosexual and I'm going to hell. I said, nope, 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 nope. I have faith. I have faith because my grandmother has always told me, if you truly want something in your heart and you pray to God, he will answer your prayer. And by God, he's going to answer my prayer. He answered Moses's. Moses prayed for safe passage. He divided the Red Sea and let the, the Moses and the Israelites go through there. Mary prayed for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. He raised that guy from the dead. And he brought himself back to life. So if he can do all that, he can turn this little girl into a boy. And that old woman is crazy. She is slap-ass crazy. Well, <laughs> a couple months passed and that period kept coming. 
So I went back to those woods and I told God, I said, well, you condemned me just like Judas. Judas didn't have an option out of that. He had to betray Jesus. And you're making me a homosexual and you're condemning me. And I was pissed. Well, my mother came and got us and moved us to New Orleans and I never went to church again up until about a couple years ago because I went and searched for my God because my God made me perfect and he loves me and he still loves me and I'll be in heaven. Granted, I'm not going to be on that front row. I've done some shit. But I will be there, and there'll be a lot of mouths hanging open. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I'm a baby. Well, I'm a baby, too. Goo. Goo. I'm a boy or a girl. Yeah? What else? Search me. I'm just born. I'm a baby. I don't know nothing yet. You think you're a girl? Yep, yep. I'm a girl. That's it. Girl time. What do you think I am? A loaf of bread? Exactly. And you know why? Why? Because everyone's born with a clean shave. You just shaved, right? So what does that prove? You're bald, fella. You're bald as a ping pong ball. Are you bald? So? See, that proves that girls are patient. Boys are impatient. Gee, I don't feel like a boy. Well, if you're a boy and I'm a girl, you can beat me up. You think I want to lose a tooth my first day alive? I think you're wrong. I'm never wrong. Why? What do I look like? A cocktail waitress. Does that prove anything? Mm. You're a boy. You sure? Of course I'm sure. I'm alive already four or five minutes, right? I haven't been wrong yet. Maybe you're a boy and I'm a girl. There you go again. I told you I'm a girl. I know it. I know it. I'm a girl and you're a boy. You can't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> hey, look at that. <sighs> a bald girl. Yuck. I was only five years old when it happened. We were out in the backyard. It was uh, me and my sister Rose and my daddy. And we were having a barbecue. Mama was in the house. Daddy had lit the coals, but they went out before they were ready. So he decided to restart them by spraying lighter fluid directly onto the coals. And me and Rose were standing right here by the grill. And he said, y'all get back just in case something happened. So we backed up a few steps, and he sprayed the lighter fluid onto the coals. Now what he didn't know was that deep down in there, there was some fire left. And when that lighter fluid hit that fire, it created a spark, which ignited the lighter fluid. It went back up into the can, and the can exploded in his hand. Now my sister, who was standing within arm's length of me, wasn't even touched. And my daddy, who was holding the can, he got a little blister on his thumb. I was directly in the path of the fireball. And I was immediately engulfed in flames. And I started to run and to scream. And daddy caught me. And he got me on the ground. He patted out the fire with his hands. And my mama came out to see what was happening. And we lived about 15 miles away from the nearest hospital, which was in Paris, Tennessee, and there wasn't time to wait for an ambulance. So Mama got me in a blanket, and we got in the car, and we headed to the hospital. Now, it seems inconceivable that I could remember any of this, but I can. I remember my sister Rose popping her head over the front seat over and over going, is he alive? 
Is he still alive? Is he going to live? And my mama exploding at her and said, shut up. When we got into town, daddy was running all the stop signs and the red lights and flashing his lights and blaring his horn. And as we went through one intersection, there was a policeman sitting there. And he pulled us over. And when he came to the car and saw the situation, he got me and mama in the car with him. And he told my daddy, he said, you follow me. We're going directly to the hospital. We're not going to stop. Now, the funny thing is, I actually recognize this police officer. He had the same last name that we did, Kendall. As far as I know, we were not related. He was a black man. In high school, I became friends with his children. And we used to call each other cuz. We had a connection. So we'd meet in the hall and be like, hey cuz, what's happening cuz? Them redneck kids didn't know what to make out of all that. <laughs> the emergency room doctor told my parents, said, to expect the very worst. That I had a 50-50 chance of surviving the night. And if I did live through the night, I'd probably live, but I would almost certainly be blind and brain damaged. Well, I like to think he was only half right. <laughs> I can plainly see. <laughs> the next thing I remember is I had an out-of-body experience. It was like I was hovering up in the ceiling and I could see myself lying in bed wrapped in bandages, my entire upper body and my face. And I did look bad. And while I was observing this, I could also see my mother and a nurse. They were taping paper onto a window to block out light. I don't know why they were doing this. But I do know that it happened. Because decades later, in the only conversation that me and my mama ever had about this, she confirmed that all of my recollections were true. Now they say in a near-death experience such as this that you're given a, a choice. If you want to live or you want to die, should I stay or should I go? I don't remember getting this choice. If I did, I'm glad I decided to stick around. But if I'd have known what the next few weeks was going to be like, I might not have. I had multiple skin graft operations. They took strips of skin off my leg and they put it on my body and my face to grow new skin. The worst thing of all, by far, was when they changed the bandages and cleaned the wounds. And they'd wheel me down to a room and in this room there was a metal table and there was a light on it and a pan with a sponge in it soaking in some kind of antiseptic solution. And they would put me on this table and a nurse would hold my arms up in the air. And the doctor would take these bandages off. And he would take this sponge and he would wipe it on these open wounds. Now I can see some of y'all having a reaction trying to imagine what this must have felt like. You cannot imagine it. The pain was indescribable. Unimaginable. I can't imagine it anymore, thank God. But you know what? Standing here tonight telling you this story, I can still feel that same dread and terror 
that I felt when they were wheeling me down to that room. Now this doctor who treated me, he probably saved my life. His name was Dr. Joe Mobley. He was a big man, had a big balding head and hated him. <laughs> I hated and despised him with a relentless animosity because he meant one thing to me and that was P-A-I-N, pain. Whenever he showed up, something bad was about to happen to me. Like I said, he was a big man, bald in head, big eyes, and he wore these black framed glasses. He looked like a sadistic, Google-eyed Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> well, you know, one of the outcomes of all this, besides just the obvious, was that I was, I was spoiled rotten. I was waited on hand and foot, of course. I couldn't do anything for myself. But as I got better, every, every wish that I had, every desire I had was indulged. And I don't blame anybody for this. I would do the same thing if it was my child, but it did warp my worldview in a way that still impacts me to this day. Now, my main accomplice was my grandmother, Ruth. And man, could she cook. Now, we all know how bad hospital food is. To this day, I can't look at a cube of jello without getting angry. <laughs> and Grandma would cook all my favorite foods. Fried chicken, country ham and biscuits on them big buttermilk biscuits, fried apple pies, everything that I love. About my favorite thing of all, which was watermelons. Me and Daddy had planted a watermelon patch right before the accident. And Grandma would cook all his food and bring it up to me in her purse. <laughs> she had one of these big old southern lady purses. And it was big. It hold like a small dog, an entire quarter of a watermelon. And she'd put that purse on her arm like this, and she'd walk in a room with it. And she'd spread this big feast out in front of me on this tray. And I'd sit there and eat like a hog while she went and guarded the door to make sure we didn't get busted by the nurse. When it was over, she would come and wash my face and hands with a wet rag, bag up the scraps, put it back in the purse, <laughs> remove all evidence of this illicit activity. <laughs> Eventually, the room was full of toys, stuffed animals, logs, puzzles, games. My most beloved toy was a dart gun. It wasn't just any dart gun, no, it was a super deluxe special dart gun. My daddy went all the way to Memphis, 100 miles away, to a specialty toy store. And he got this special dart gun, and he brought it back to me. What was special about it was that it shot extra long darts with more force and more accuracy. And he brought it back, and he took a target, and he stuck it on the opposite wall of the hospital room. And I laid in bed. I would shoot my three or four, or for our Cajun friends, four or three darts and somebody go get them and bring them back to me this must have happened a thousand times well it happened so much that I became a deadly accurate marksman I got to where I could just shoot from the hip like this like John Wayne or something and hit that target and I don't mean every now and then I mean like a lot 
Of course, as the weeks went by, I was a young as a child, so I started to heal. You know, I healed quickly. And weeks and weeks went by, and there was talk of letting me go home. And every day I would ask Dr. Joe, can I go home today? Not today, son, maybe tomorrow. Well, we know tomorrow never comes. Day after day I would ask him this, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. Funny thing is, you know, back in those days, you could still smoke in a hospital. <laughs> Dr. Joe liked these big smelly cigars. And I'd always get advance warning when he came on the floor, because I'd smell that smoke as he got off the elevator. And I'd know that Dr. Payne was in the house. And my room was right outside of the nurse's station. And he'd always stop there first and talk. And I, he had a big booming, jolly voice that I hated, of course. <laughs> and on this particular morning, Dr. Joe came down the floor, stopped at the nurse's station. And I heard him talking to the nurses, and then he said, well, I got to go see little Davy Crockett. And that was his nickname for me, little Davy Crockett. God damn, I wanted to hate that name. <laughs> Just because he gave it to me. But I couldn't, man. I love Davy Crockett. <laughs> Matter of fact, I had a toy Davy Crockett kit lying on the bed right next to me with a little replica musket and a powder patch and a coonskin cap I had on at that exact moment. <laughs> I remember, heard Dr. Joe walking towards my door, and I took a dart, and I loaded that gun. <laughs> and I licked the tip of it. <laughs> and I waited. I heard him get my chart off the door. I heard the doorknob turn, and the door opened. I saw that big pumpkin head of his pop through the door, and I shot across my body just like this. And you know what? It hit him right between the eyes. I'm not lying. My mama was here. She would tell you this happened. Well, let me tell you, he was mighty surprised. I was too, to be honest with you. He stood there for a minute in shocked silence, looking at this dart sticking out of his forehead like a horn with them big Google eyes of his. And then he walked across the room, and he took that dart off his head. He walked over across the room, he walked to that target, and he took that dart off his head, it went like that, and he stuck that dart on that target, and he walked back across the room. He didn't look at me, he didn't say a fucking word. <laughs> He got to the door, and he opened the door, and right before he walked out, he said, I was going to let you go home today. <laughs> but after that, I think we'll keep you around another day. <laughs> and he walked out. I immediately regretted my decision to fire on Dr. Joe. And I wailed in lamentation. Dr. Joe, please, please, I'm sorry, please let me, I'm sorry, please let me go home. Well, it seemed like an eternity, but really he just waited outside the door and left me stew in my juices for a minute to teach me a lesson about shooting a highly respected doctor. 
And he walked back in. He said, okay, now, I'm going to let you go home if you promise to behave. I agreed. <laughs> now, you know, the rules of the hospital are that you can't just walk out on your own. They have to wheel you out in a wheelchair. They brought a wheelchair in there. Uh-uh. I had enough of this being wheeled around shit. <laughs> I dug my heels in because I wanted to walk out. And me and him wrangled fierce over this for a while. And I threw such a fit. I raised so much hell that he finally acquiesced and he said, walk out if you want to, just go home. <laughs> well, you know, by then I knew every nurse and orderly and janitor and doctor and patient on my floor. And when I walked down that hall with my little spindly legs, they was lined the halls watching me leave. I'd been there so long. I guess I was a hospital favorite by then. I was like a little king of prince leaving. Some of them was crying. The first thing I did when I got home was to go out to that watermelon patch that me and Daddy planted. Daddy followed me out there. He said, pick any one you want, son. We'll eat it right now. And I went and found the ripest, juiciest watermelon I could. I pointed to it. He reached down. He snapped the stem and he picked it up in one hand. He picked me up in the other and he carried us back to the house. And that was the first time I ever saw him cry. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Chapo behind me now. <laughs> and that was Dave Kendall we just heard. You know, you often hear people in the performing arts say, I'd be happy just listening to that fella or that lady uh, read from the phone book. <laughs> Dave Kendall is that kind of guy. 
And before that, we heard the interstitial from our beloved episode editor, Jeff Barr. Okay, every week, I'm supposed to read this copy that says, I don't know if it's just me or the winter or what, but it seems like a lot of folks around are feeling down lately. (laughs) All right, but no, we all know there are more pressing reasons that people are indeed feeling anxious and agitated and dark in the beginning of 2017. And that's why I find this particular new sponsor of ours intriguing. It's Talkspace. I mean, in a way, they're doing an online business that's at least somewhat similar to ours right here. If you've ever thought about going to therapy but found it too inconvenient or too expensive or you're just too embarrassed to go to you know, a therapist's office, then give Talkspace a try. Talkspace is the online therapy company and they make it easy to connect with a licensed therapist, handpicked just for you for as little as $32 a week. Using Talkspace, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist as much as you want. Your Talkspace therapist can listen to you vent about work or family or relationships and help put you on the path to a happier life. To sign up or learn more, go to Talkspace.com slash risk. And as a special offer for our listeners, you can use the coupon code risk to get $30 off your first month and show your support for the podcast. That's risk and Talkspace.com slash risk. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Okay. Our final story comes from a wonderful man named Randall Robinson. So, without further ado, here is Randall Robinson at the Risk Live show in Houston with the story we call For Elizabeth. So it's a hot summer day, and I'm walking through the tall grass, carrying a burlap bag. I'm six years old, and we're walking around the lake. We're at a retreat center that uh, my father had taken me and my older brother on a retreat. And uh, it's at our church camp, our denomination's retreat center, lake in deep East Texas. I almost didn't go. I almost didn't get to go around the lake with them because I, I was just too, too small. And I, I said, come on, Daddy, please take me. Let me go, please. I can help. He said, okay, and handed me the bag. And I would walk right in his footsteps as we were making our way through the underbrush. Uh, he kind of could make a path for me. It was with a group of other men and boys on the retreat. And we got around to the far side of this lake, came in underneath the pine trees. I could hear the wind 
You know, the wind sounds different in pine trees. It's not a rustle, it's kind of a shushing sound. And we came around to the far side and we made our way down to the water's edge. And there on the embankment is a really big metal cross, all rusted, brown, and dirty looking. And they took my burlap bag and some others that they were carrying and they wrapped them all around the cross. They tied them on all the arms and up and down. They had a, a, a kind of a bucket of kerosene and it had a ladle and they ladled the kerosene up onto those bags. I hadn't smelled kerosene before. They told me what it was. And the bags were completely drenched. And we made our way back around the lake and then that evening at uh, Vesper worship, they lit the cross. And it, it flamed up into the night sky and it reflected in the surface of the lake. And it was beautiful. And most importantly, though I didn't understand what it meant, I had gotten to participate. I had gotten to go with the big guys and help. I got to help. I didn't know what it meant, but you would have thought somebody among them would have known what a burning cross meant just about nine months before Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. You know what I mean? I jump ahead about 50 years. In that time, I haven't helped create any more burning crosses. I've pretty much just been working trying not to end up being a racist. I have ended up being a... Um, a pastor in the same denomination, an ordained clergy person. I have had a career of 30 years in the church, leading people, loving people. However, I am the kind of pastor, I'm one of those liberal social justice, everybody and anybody is welcome to preach and be part and be in the gospel. That's the kind, okay? but I'm in a denomination that doesn't welcome that attitude. I find myself in 2014 at the very same retreat center, very same denominational encampment, and I am the director of 200 fourth and fifth graders, 10 and 11 year olds. We got five days together at church camp. So, we're going through our program every day. And I do love this. I got about 60 adults, all volunteers, who put the program together. We have a great time. I love working with people, and I love the kids. And I am, I'm doing something else each night of camp, though. I'm going back to my cabin, and I'm writing a letter to my bishop to resign because I've had it. I've lost my ability to tolerate the intolerant, if you know what I mean. I've lost my ability to keep my anger in check, my ability to have patience with people. And so I'm writing this. And, and the programming is going through the week and we're right at Thursday night. And Thursday night I've got to finish it because Friday morning we're all going home.
And so Thursday night, I'm going back to my cabin, and I'm going to finalize it, and I'm going to send it off. Well, the program Thursday night is an exciting thing some of you may not know about. It's called a foot washing. And uh, foot washing with uh, 200 fourth and fifth graders is, uh, well, let me just put it this way. They've had four or five days of, of caring for their own hygiene themselves for the first time in their lives. <sighs> I'll just bluntly, you better have your gag reflex pretty well uh, in check. We're there. We've got uh, six stations, pans of water with some uh, disinfectant mixed in. And uh, I'm kneeling down there, uh, the pan of water, and I'm, I'm just checking out my water, thinking, do I want to put my hands back in there? Is there enough floaty gunk stuff in there that I should call for someone to come and replace my pan of water? And the next kid, they're lined up in the stations, and uh, the next kid sits down, and it's a little girl named Elizabeth. And I, I call for the pan of water to be changed, and I look up at Elizabeth, and I say, Hello, Elizabeth. And she just looks at me. She crosses her arms. And she's... She's not very big. She can just sit on the edge of the chair and get her feet where the water's going to be. And when I look at her, she just kind of straightens up a little bit taller and looks back at me. She doesn't say a word. Elizabeth is uh, one of uh, about a dozen kids who come to the camp each year from uh, Child Protective Services and the... Um, uh, foster care system. We very quickly get them registered. We don't know about them until almost the day that they're there. They come with absolutely nothing. The clothes on their back, the worn out shoes on their feet. And when they get there, we go shopping for them. We outfit them with everything. Everything they're going to need. Sleeping bags, clothes, shampoo, toothbrush, everything. All they're going to need for the whole week. And we do it so that the other kids in the camp don't know anything about it. We maintain their dignity. We want these kids to have a great time. And Elizabeth, whenever I look at her medical records, which we receive, I see that she is a child of very severe abuse, uh, including rape when she's three years old. And as she sits down in the chair, I can't help but look again at her arms and I, I at the burn marks that are there. And I look at her, and it's Thursday night, and I just think, I've failed this child. See, Elizabeth is also uh, African-American. She's one of a couple of dozen kids at the camp who are not white. And unfortunately, she was placed into a, a cabin. Now, a cabin is a, a grouping of 15 kids and three adults. And she's placed into the cabin of a woman that I privately, in my own mind, call um, the White Witch. Uh, C.S. Lewis, forgive me, uh, but 
She's a little shorter than Tilda Swinton, but she has a lot of the same characteristics. Very short, cropped white hair. Now I'm just gonna have to ask you to trust me when I tell you that over four days, I can tell the difference between a person who's just mean-spirited and somebody who is downright bigoted. And I watched over the four days as she just cut Elizabeth out of everything. And as she made comments like, why do those children have to be here? And the subtle body language and the subtle words. So, Tuesday night, for instance, I'm back at my cabin, I'm working on my letter, and I get a call on the walkie-talkie. I head over to the girls' cabin area, and there's Elizabeth. She's standing on the porch, right where the light ends and the dark woods began. And she's standing there, steely-eyed, and there's a ring of adults around her. And I walk up just as the white witch says, Elizabeth, you gotta go back inside. Look at you, you didn't even put your shoes on. What are you gonna do, walk out into the woods? And I walk up, the white witch sees me, she just shuts up. I knelt down in front of Elizabeth and I said, uh, Elizabeth, what's going on? The white witch speaks up and says, they were playing with the flashlights. It was time to go to bed. I told them. I told them to stop. So I took her flashlight. I just looked at the woman. I said, give me the flashlight. She handed it to me. I said, don't you ever take anything from this child again. Do you understand me? And she just backed up into the crowd. I looked at Elizabeth, she's standing there looking at me. Oh, she hates me, I'm the enforcer. You know, I, I'm, I'm the authority figure. I said, Elizabeth, what do you want to do right now? What do you want to happen right now? She looked around a circle. It's the only time she's spoken to me in two days. She said, I want them all to go away. I said, okay, I can do that. I said, when they go away, Elizabeth, I'm gonna need you to do something. I'm gonna need you to go back inside and get in your bed, okay? She said, okay. I looked around, I said, okay, everybody, time to head out. They went on, everybody dispersed, me and Elizabeth on the porch. I said, okay, Elizabeth. She turned around, went back in the cabin, got in bed. We had watched the tension go on between this woman and Elizabeth. And uh, actually, Tuesday morning, we had assigned a counselor who had uh, skills and experience with children at risk. So that Elizabeth had two other counselors and a group of girls around her. And she was nurtured. She had a group. She was not alone. Thursday night, Elizabeth sitting in my chair. They bring the water. She puts her feet in. I cut my hands in the water. 
I ladle it up on her tiny little feet. I look up at her. I said, Elizabeth, Jesus loves you. So what I said to everybody, I handed her a towel. She dried her feet. She put her sandals back on and she went on off the next person sitting down. And then I get a tap on the shoulder and a whisper in my ear. Elizabeth wants to wash feet. I said, okay. I look around. I see Elizabeth standing there. I get up. That person takes my place. I go over there to talk to Elizabeth. I said, Elizabeth, you want to do, you want to do something? She says, I want to wash feet. I said, okay. I said, you know, we're washing feet because, because Jesus did it for his disciples and it makes everybody equal. Nobody's better than anybody else. We all help each other. You get that, right? Yeah. I said, you see how we do it? You see how people put their feet in and you, you put the water on and then you give them the towel and you tell them that Jesus loves them. You can do all that. She says, I can do that. All right. I get her in place. She kneels down at the pan of water. She starts washing feet. I step up. I stand back. I walk around watching. And then I notice about four people back in line. Guess who? Yeah. Had me worried. Had me worried. I went over to the counselor we had uh, installed in her cabin and we discussed it. I said, are we good letting this happen? You see what's coming, don't you? We talked. I said, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. She'll be okay. The word kind of spread around the room, the other adults, and even some of the kids noticed what was going to happen. They could see what was coming. This little girl's tormentor, this woman that had just been so hateful to this child for four days, was going to sit down in that chair and let that child wash her feet. And we watched Sure enough, she comes up, sits in a chair. She puts her feet in the water. Mm, mm, mm. Elizabeth reached down in the water and she began to ladle that water up on her ankles. And she touched her feet and she bathed her feet. And then she looks up, she reaches for the towel she hands it to her and she says, Jesus loves you. And the white witch just sat there. Blank. No reaction. She drives off her feet, puts her shoes on, gets up, walks away. Now me and the other counselors, I started weeping when Elizabeth was washing her feet. I could not contain it. It had been four days of hoping that for this child and her brokenness that something, something would come together for her, that somehow she might have an experience that she might show some kind of maybe healing or reception or experience of love. 
And there it was. She was not the recipient. She was the one giving it. I went back to my cabin that night. I looked at the letter I was writing and I deleted it. The next day, Friday mornings, the last morning together, the kids all write notes and letters to the people that they've been around in camp with. Elizabeth wrote me a note. She hadn't said anything but the words you've heard me describe all week. She brings me a folded piece of paper right before she's getting on the bus. I opened it. It said, Dear Mr. Randy, camp is good. I got to wash feet. Thank you for letting me help. Love, Elizabeth. I stayed in. I continue because when I'm watching, I'm waiting. I'm hoping for more Elizabeths to come through the wardrobe to remind us, to remind me just exactly what it is we believe in. Thank you very much. is all for this week's episode folks this is brendan benson behind me now and we just heard from randall robinson now here is where risk is appearing next we are in carborough north carolina on february 17th the theme that night is what and we're still taking pitches at risk-show.com slash submissions. So pitches, folks, around Carborough, North Carolina. On February 18th, we are in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. On the 22nd, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And on March 18th, we are coming to Burlington, Vermont for the very first time. How about, let's make the theme that night, Idiots! I like when I just make up the themes for evenings while I'm doing the end hosting. Yeah, so March 18th in Burlington, Vermont, the theme is Idiots! <laughs> and you can pitch us at wristedshow.com submissions. 
otherwise, be sure to look us up at thestorystudio.org where we have all sorts of uh, training in storytelling for, you know, corporate workshops, uh, one-on-one training over Skype, our video courses, our in-person courses that we do in New York and Los Angeles and Minneapolis. Look us up at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Brilliant. It's a simple way of showing your support. And it's through our page, Fuck My Ass. <laughs> God damn it. Idiot.